first letter to Timothy, chapter 6. The notes are in the bulletin. This morning we have two verses. Two small verses, pretty straightforward, pretty simple, and brutal in their application. And so I think there's much for us here today, um, and I expect we'll be challenged. And so we're going to read the text, and we'll pray and ask God for grace. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Let all who are under yokes as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. Lord God, Lord, we need your grace to help us understand um, how Paul could give this instruction to slaves. Lord, we need your grace to understand what truth you have for us in this passage, Lord. Um, I believe that your, what your word teaches here is counterintuitive, countercultural. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would give the grace, open our eyes, give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, what we're going to do is look at this passage sort of in two sections. We're going to address the issue of the Bible and slavery, and then after addressing that, we are going to look at seven principles for all under authority. But first, we've got to deal with the Bible and slavery. I'm sure if you've talked with unbelievers, people who are skeptical of the Bible's claims, one of the first things they go to is the accusation that the Bible is pro-slavery. Um, that the Bible's for slavery, and therefore the Bible's a bad book. I'm, I doubt I'm the only person who's heard this from people. And, and that needs to be addressed. Now, what do we make of the Bible's teachings about slavery? Part of the problem that complicates this further is our English translations regularly fail to translate the word slave as slave. I'm starting first with the King James. Um, all, nearly all the modern translations, ESV, New American Standard, NIV, refuse to translate doulos, slave, as slave in the vast majority of the occurrences in the New Testament. The Holman Standard Version is one of the few translations that actually faithfully translates do loss as slave. And so half the time we're even reading about it in the New Testament, we don't know we are. Um, the, their reasons are the difference between um, Roman slavery and American chattel slavery are, are vast. Um, Roman slavery was not race-based. All manners of citizens could be slaves. You could be a um, well-to-do in the sense of living a comfortable lifestyle physician or teacher and be a slave. Um, some estimates put that in the Roman Empire, at one point, nearly a third of the people in it were slaves. And so, because in American eyes, they draw pictures of people in chains, people in um, bondage, they, a lot of the translators decided not to translate that. The, the problem arises is it's hard to make sense of some of the Bible's usage about slaves. For instance, Jesus' teaching, no servant can serve two masters. Of course you can. You can have two part-time jobs. No slave can serve two masters. Oh, that starts to click. Um, 
And so what we're talking about here is slaves. Um, the ESV, only in its most recent update, translated verses 6, 1, and 2 as slaves. Some of you, if you have the ESV, may have bond servants, which is a word translators invented to deal with this issue because they know that servant's too weak. But we're, this is what we're talking about. I mean, we've got to look square in the face and start with the fact that Paul is giving instruction to slaves, not to servants, not to bond servants, to slaves. Writing about this, and, and John MacArthur has an excellent book called Slave on this topic, um, writes the following. In the uh, Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, um, on this word for slave, it says the meaning is so univocal and self-contained that it is unnecessary to give examples of individual terms. The emphasis is always on serving as a slave, hence we have a service which is not a matter of choice for the one who renders it, which he is to perform whether he likes it or not, because he is the subject as a slave to an alien will, to the will of his owner. While it is true that the duties of slave and servant may overlap to some degree, there is a key distinction between the two. Servants are hired, slaves are owned. Servants have an element of freedom in choosing whom they work for and what they do. The idea of servanthood maintains some level of self-autonomy and personal rights. Slaves, on the other hand, have no freedom, no autonomy, no rights. And so we're talking about slaves. And at the face value, and this is one of the passages that critics of the Bible like to go to, Paul is telling slaves, be good slaves, obey your masters. And so people go to this passage and they accuse the Bible of being pro-slavery. Um, that's, that's not a correct view of things. And see the blanks here, slavery was not outlawed by the Bible, but neither is it approved. Slavery was not outlawed by the Bible, neither was it approved. It's, it's sort of like Moses' um, teaching on divorce that Jesus says he allowed for the hardness of heart. Nowhere in the Old Testament um, is divorce allowed. It's assumed to be happening, and so the Deuteronomy passage says, when you divorce, here's how you're going to do it. You're going to give protection to the woman by giving her certificate so she doesn't get accused as an adulteress and get stoned to death. And so Jesus makes that clear. Moses allowed, did not approve of the practice, um, well, the same thing's the case here. Slavery has always been going on as far back as history can go, for the most part, in the world. And when the law was given to Israel, slavery was a common practice. And so the Bible does not approve of it. It doesn't outlaw it either. And that's where I think some of the um, difficulty comes in, because here, Paul is not for slavery. In fact, turn back in 1 Timothy to chapter 1. Paul lets us know what he feels about slavery, Quite clearly, I think, in chapter 1, we'll pick it up in verse 8. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers liars, perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine so Paul clearly puts people who are engaged in the slave trade, people who are grabbing and kidnapping people under this category of sinful lawless wicked people so clearly Paul is not a fan of slavery 
But neither is Paul on a mission to get it abolished. His goals are much higher. He's focused on the gospel. Um, another thing sometimes people trip over, Paul sends Philemon back to, he sends Onesimus back to his master Philemon. Onesimus is a runaway slave who encounters Paul. Paul brings him to faith in Jesus Christ. And then Paul sends him back to his master. And again, people will say, see, Paul is pro-slavery. But if you actually read Philemon, um, Paul says this to Philemon. He says, I would have been glad to keep him, this is Onesimus, with me, in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might be not by compulsion, but of your own accord. Paul sent Onesimus back to Philemon precisely so that Philemon could free him. He just didn't want to force Philemon to do this. He rather pleaded with him to do it voluntarily. Paul elsewhere tells slaves if they can be free, to be free. In 1 Corinthians 7, 20 to 22, it says, Each one should remain in the condition in which he is called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. So the Bible is not pro-slavery. Um, the Bible simply acknowledges slavery as a thing that is in society. Paul tells slaves, hey, if you can be free, be free. Um, Paul is not a fan of those who enslave. And, and not all slaves became slaves because they were captured. Some sold themselves into slavery willingly, voluntarily. Um, and so the Bible is not pro-slavery. The Bible acknowledges that it exists as a social institution, and so Paul, addressing the Ephesian church, where probably a large amount of the church are slaves or ex-slaves or slave owners, this is a real pressing issue. Um, which also brings us to the question, well, what does this mean for us? We live in, in a world where virtually all first world countries have done away with and abolished the slave trade, and, and praise God for that. So what do we get from this? Well... Not only is slavery a thing on earth that exists, but it actually is a metaphor that Scripture uses for believers' relationship to God and to sin regularly. It's, it's almost the dominant metaphor. Um, listen to this from 1 Corinthians six nineteen to 20. Do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. You get that? You're not your own. You're somebody else's property. You are owned. I am owned. I am not a free man. I am owned by someone who bought me. Or turning your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. And there's just numerous passages where this happens. And again, some of the difficulty is... They'll translate slave as servant or bond servant, and, and so it becomes tricky because it's just slave. There's plenty of Greek words that mean servant, steward, manager. But whenever doulos is used, which is used 155 times in the New Testament, it means one thing and one thing only, a slave. Romans 6, verses 15 to 19. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Just to say, because we're not under the law, because we're forgiven by grace, because we're not saved by works, should we just do whatever we want? By no means, Paul says. Why? Because there's a slavery principle. 
Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin became obedient from the heart to that standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Do you get that? Everyone's a slave. Spiritually, everyone's a slave. Everyone is under an alien will. Everyone is controlled by something outside of them. You are either a slave to sin and its passions and desires, or you are a slave to righteousness. There is no third position. There's no third position. Now, it's only becoming a slave of righteousness that we become free. But here's the freedom to obey, the freedom to serve, the freedom to, to be more like Jesus Christ. Each and every one of us is a slave. And in fact, the point of calling Jesus Lord is recognizing our position in relationship to him. J Jesus makes this really clear in one of his parables. I'm going to translate, or I'm going to put in the correct word for slave as opposed to servant, and I think this becomes clear. In Luke 17, 7 to 10, Jesus gives this analogy. Will any one of you who has a slave plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare me supper and dress me properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the slave because he did what he was commanded? So you also, and you have done all that you who have been commanded, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have only done what is our duty. You see what a difference a word makes. And that's how Jesus says believers should identify themselves. When we've done everything that God tells us to do, when we've been obedient, we're just doing what slaves are supposed to do. Now, it's a different type of slavery because we're slaves who become sons and beloved. But we are owned, and we are to submit ourselves to an alien will nonetheless. And so to that degree, slavery is an accurate picture of our relationship to God. This is not popular. This is not um, something that's frequently heard. It's absolutely biblical. And for more on this, MacArthur's book, Slave, we have a copy in the library, is excellent. Excellent. But it changes things. I remember when Serena um, was pregnant with Abner towards the end of the pregnancy, we'd go on these walks in the morning and pray. And, and I'd always start by trying to remind myself what I forget each and every day. I mean, I forget this every day, that I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. I, I, am, I am not freed to do what I please, but I am somebody else's property. I'm a slave, and I need to view my life that way. Um, this is an important principle for believers to grasp. We are all slaves. And so as we look at this passage, here's, here's the principle I want to get from this. We're going to look at this as it deals with slaves. But the Bible's treatment of authority and how to respond to authority is uniform, whatever that authority is. And we'll see this. Whether it's governmental authority, whether it's, you know, slave masters here, whether it's family authorities, whether it's civil authorities. It's the same across the boards. And so we're going to get seven principles for all people under authority. And it's kind of the argument from the greater to the lesser. 
If Paul can tell slaves who have no rights, no freedom, no ability to resist, if he can tell them to do these things, well, how much more can we, who are not earthly slaves to anyone, are the, the authorities that we are under are limited authorities. The government has limited authority. Um, the, your employers have limited authority. In the family, there's a limited authority. And so our authorities are not absolute and totalizing as, as these peoples are. So how much more, then, should we hear Paul's instruction? Um, and if you turn in your Bibles to, to 1 Peter chapter 2, it's sort of a parallel passage that we'll be going back and forth to. You may want to put a piece of paper here, because we're going to go back to this passage probably two or three times in our time this morning. Um, the First Peter chapter 2 draws it all together, I think, pretty clearly, and shows that this principle of authority and submission and what that looks like that we're going to draw really plays across the board, whether it's in a slave relationship or government relationship or whatever. Um, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Here's sort of the overriding umbrella category. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governor as those sent by him to punish those who do evil and to the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as, and here it should be, slaves of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. 18. Slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only the good and the gentle, but also the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He bore our sins in his body on the tree, we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we've been healed. We were straying like sheep, but now return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word um, by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And so this whole theme gets brought together under the umbrella category in verse 13 of being submissive to all human institutions and just goes right through. The, the, the instruction is uniform regardless of what position you find yourself in. It's not that there's special instructions for government, special instructions for slaves. The principle of submission and dealing with authority remains the same. The application is going to be different in each case. And one more word of caution. Um, there's, there's an authority that trumps all other authorities, and that's the living God. And so, as much as Paul's going to tell these slaves to serve and obey their masters... The assumed exception is, except when doing so would be sin. We think of the apostles when they're forbidden from preaching the gospel, saying it is better for us, you decide, to obey man or obey God. And so we're never to submit to an earthly authority if in doing so we are sinning, if the command is to sin. If your boss tells you to lie for him, to cheat for him, you, you cannot do that. Children, if your parents want you to sin for them, to lie for them, you cannot do that. 
But in all other exceptions, these seven principles apply. So keep your thumb in 1 Peter. We're going to go back now to 1 Timothy and work through these seven principles. The first principle is this. Be willing to suffer wrong and mistreatment. Be willing to suffer wrong and mistreatment. And I say that because it's really just largely assumed in this text. Paul writes to people in a situation that many of us would be, find unimaginable of being slaves. And not just any slaves. In verse 1, he's dealing with slaves whose masters are unbelievers, which is why I think he adds in that phrase a yoke of slavery. And whereas across the board, slavery in the Roman Empire was not as bad as it was in America, certainly in places it was just as bad, if not worse. I mean, we just read about in First Peter, a slave whose masters beat them for no reason. And he doesn't tell them to pick up arms and fight back. He doesn't tell them to run away. He gives them instruction in that situation how to honor God. And so it's assumed that these people must be prepared for suffering. And, and again, if we read our Bibles, honestly, we'll recognize that page by page, the church is told, be ready for suffering. Paul in 2 Timothy is going to tell young Timothy that all who desire to live a godly life will suffer persecution. And it's important to bring this point out because our culture is exactly flip-flopped on this. We live in a culture where if someone even offends you, you can sue. If you're even offended, I mean, so, so far have we gotten in a culture from being willing to be mistreated, from being willing to have our rights taken from us, from being willing to suffer abuse and mistreatment, that we now can sue if we're even offended. People leave marriages because they're not happy. People um, sue McDonald's because their coffee's too hot. And, and I remember growing up that there was two brothers who, who murdered their parents. Some of you may be too young to remember this, but the Menendez trial. And in the initial trial, their entire defense was, we did it, but our parents were mean to us. And the initial trial let them off. There was later a retrial where they were convicted. So we live in a culture that, that tells us that, A, no one should ever mistreat you. And, and there's truth to that. Ideally, that should not happen. But that if it does, get out of there. Remove yourself from that. Don't put up with it. Sue somebody. And furthermore, our culture's developed a sort of victimization mentality where now, if someone's mistreated you, even if it was 15, 20 years ago, we've got a whole school of psychology and psychotherapy that'll come in, and, and man, you're just going to be screwed up for life. I mean, you wonder how people like Joseph, Daniel, um, survived and honored God as they did, considering all the wrongs that were done to them. Joseph, remember, his brothers faked his murder, kidnapped him, sold him into slavery. In slavery, he is falsely accused of, of attempted rape, thrown into jail. And the whole time, everyone interacting with him sees his godly behavior such that he's always honored, he's always promoted, and he saves millions of people in that area of the world. Daniel, kidnapped from Jerusalem, likely castrated, working as an advisor through three regimes, always in a high position because of what faithful, wise counsel he gave. And these are people who, if anyone has a right to feel bitter, to feel wrong done by, it's them. They're models of glorifying God and serving, being prepared for suffering. And turn, turn to First Peter quickly, back to First Peter 2, and, I'll, and I'll, we'll look at this. 
and, and we'll see that this is just a general across the board's principle. 1 Peter chapter 2, 18. We're initially addressing slaves. And then Peter is going to broaden it out to anyone. Slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. And look at verse 18, 19, I mean. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures. He's broadened it out now to anyone. The counsel he's giving slaves is the counsel he'd give anyone potentially suffering unjustly, and the counsel is this. It's a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. There's the principle. Keep going. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it and endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And then look at verse 21. For to this you have been called. Again, this isn't the type of thing that generally makes it in the evangelism proclamation. It's a call, according to 1 Peter, to willingly suffer. It's a call to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, which is exactly where he goes with this. Christ also suffered, leaving you an example. You remember Jesus' words, that they're not going to treat the slave better than they treat the master. If they call the master of the house Beelzebub, what will they call his slaves? And so we've got to be willing to suffer wrong and mistreatment. Now, that doesn't mean that we sort of develop a, um, a moving just automatically towards those things. Paul tells slaves, hey, if you can get out of being a slave, get out of being a slave. Hey, if, if your jock, your job, your boss, sorry, your job, if your boss is a tyrant and you can get a new job, by all means. But there are going to be plenty of times in this life where we're not just going to be able to easily step out of things. And the Lord may be calling us to suffer for a time, to trust him for a time, to follow the example of Jesus for a time. And this has got to be something that we're willing to consider. Because our knee-jerk reaction is, get away from it, move away from it, protect myself, stand up for myself. I won't let you do this to me. That mentality is just not something you're going to find in the Bible. It's not going to be something you find in the Lord Jesus. So we've got to be willing to suffer wrong and mistreatment. Point number two, now back to First uh, Timothy, is the battle, as always, will be over thoughts and beliefs. Because what Paul commands these slaves to do is not to perform a function, but to think the imperative verb in verse 1 is they must regard their masters as worthy of all honor. Paul doesn't say their masters are, in fact, worthy of all honor. In fact, the way he phrases it suggests he's well aware many of them probably aren't. The command is how will we think about them. And this gets to the root of the issue. It's, it's not good enough to sort of that painting, you know, the, of the child who is sitting down, but the caption says, I'm standing up on the inside. That, that's not good enough. It's not good enough to submit to authorities in our lives begrudgingly, grumbling under our breath, inwardly angry. If that's what we're doing, we are in defiance to God and his word. The command is the battle how will we think about the authorities in our lives? And I just want you to think about whatever authorities are in your lives. That it's not enough 
to obey them. It's not enough to submit to them. What we've got to work at doing, and the, the command is here because it's going to take work. It's not going to happen naturally. It's, will we think of them in an honoring way? Or will we reserve the right to complain, um, to slander, to despise those authorities that God has put in our lives? And this is where our own slavery to God comes into play. Because we are his property, he can then tell us, Jeremy, these are the parents I gave you. Honor them. Abner, these are the parents I gave you. Honor them. Not because of who they are, but because of who I am and because you are mine. And so all the authority then is derivative authority coming from the Lord. So the battle will be over the thoughts and beliefs of the mind. It always is. It always will be. It's not enough simply to say, I'm obeying. But I'm standing up on the inside. That's not good enough. It doesn't cut it. It's hard. And that's why this instruction is here. I mean, just imagine how hard it is to tell a slave who's got an unbelieving master. It's not, it's not enough simply for you to be a good slave. You've got to work at and cultivate a mindset that honors and views your master as worthy of all honor. That's what's being told here. That's the standard. That's the bar. And we dare not lower our sights to anything lesser. Number three, be concerned for God's name and the gospel, not your rights. Because he gives them a motivation here at the end of verse one. He gives them a, a warrant for this command. He says he wants them to do this so that, and there it is, the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. But that again makes an assumption. It assumes his readers care more about the name of God and the teaching than about their own rights. That argument only works if that's the way your value system works. You know, if we're honest, many of us would say, well, I want God's name and the teaching to be honored, but what I really want is my rights. And so this whole argument assumes a value system and a priority system, which again is countercultural. Where my passion, my goal is that God's name be glorified. My passion, my goal is that the gospel would advance. And, and if that happens at the cost of my comfort, that happens at the cost of my rights, so be it. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a slave to all, that I might win more to them. And then he goes on, talking about how to the Greek he becomes a Greek, to the Jew he becomes a Jew, to those under the law. He becomes as one under the law. Paul, Paul willingly makes himself the slave of all so that the gospel might advance. Um, and and this, this again goes back even in 1 Timothy, back in chapter 2, where he wants them praying for their leaders. Why? So they could live a peaceful life. They could live a peaceful life. The danger is this, that if, if Christians, newly became Christian slaves, start acting in a grumbling, begrudging, condescending way, or worse yet, if they revolt, like, I mean, keep in mind that the rebellion under Spartacus had only occurred about 130, 140 years previously to this. The slave revolt, slave uprisings periodically happened. There's even a hint that becoming a Christian meant that was what was going to happen. You can imagine the bad reputation Christianity would gain in the empire. You don't want a Christian slave. They're the worst possible slaves. You don't want that going out. 
And so Paul is assuming that the priorities is that can't happen. We can't let people say that when you start worshiping the living God, you're no good, you're no use. So for the sake of the name of God, for the sake of the gospel, you've got to excel. It's it's what Daniel did. It's what Joseph did. Everyone around them saw the excellence with which they did the things they did. Daniel, kidnapped. Joseph, kidnapped and sold into slavery. And yet in the conditions they were in, they were more concerned about glorifying God. They were more concerned about excelling in what they did than they were with their rights. There's a wonderful movie I'd recommend. Um, It's a little rough in regards to showing the prison camp treatment, but to end all wars, the book of the movie, is an excellent example of this mentality coming out of of people trying to be the best servants they can be. Um, But it's, again, countercultural. It's hard. Um, Be more concerned with God's name and the gospel than your rights. You know, probably the most striking example of this mentality are the Moravians. Um, Two Moravians, one by the name of John... Lonehard Dauber, on July 24th, 1731, heard a talk given by Count Nicholas Ludwig um, Zinzendorf about missions to the slaves in the Caribbean. In this talk, Zinzendorf described a former slave from the Danish island of St. Thomas named Anthony Ulrich, who believed that the slaves there would be very receptive to Christian missionaries. These men then proceeded, and their plan was to sell themselves into slavery so that they could witness to the slaves in the Caribbean. And when challenged by their friends at what looked like madness, they had this great response. May the lamb that was slain receive the rewards of his suffering. May the lamb that was slain receive the rewards of his suffering. Jesus died to save for himself a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And these Moravians were more concerned that that be fulfilled. They were more concerned with the Great Commission than with their own lives. There's some debate about whether they actually did sell themselves into slavery or not. Some accounts say they did. Others say they simply moved there, were unable to do so. But they were willing to. And again, this is just a powerful testimony to people whose priorities are on the gospel the glory of God, and not self. And then how much more should we follow suit? Point number four. Christian authorities deserve more, not less, honor and service. Christian authorities deserve more, not less, honor and service. And that moves in now to verse two. And and because the church is filled with, with slaves and ex-slaves and slave masters, this would probably be a common occurrence. And you can imagine the difficulty of being someone's slave, and then on Sunday morning, the two of you go into church together, worshiping together, and hearing repeatedly, in Christ there's neither slave nor free, male nor female. You know, and then you worship alongside each other, you herald each other as brothers, and you leave and you're back to being told what to do. You know, if I were a slave, and I'd try to encourage my master to get on those Bible reading programs, and I'd really be attentive when he gets to Philemon. And I'd be like, so, what'd you, what'd you think you're reading today? You know, any ideas come to mind? Um, and I'm not trying to make light of the situation, but you can see the difficulty. And it's even possible that a slave could hold a position of authority in the church. You can imagine how strange that would be. A slave and his master going to worship together in the church 
The slave is a deacon. The slave is an elder. And, and these types of things happened because slavery was so prominent then. And so the danger then is that the slave might view his master with contempt. And maybe he has read Philemon and he's thinking to himself, man, this guy, he hasn't set me free. He's got to be a jerk. He's got to be no good. Um, maybe that's what's going on. I, I know that for Christian employers, this can be the case. You know, I, I, sadly, usually when I talk to an employer who's Christian, I hear the same story repeatedly, which is that once the people who are employed knows he's a Christian, knows the person, the employer is a Christian, those employees who are Christians, rather than serve better, begin to presume begin to expect lenient treatment. Oh, I'm sorry I was late. I had a church service. You understand. And, and Paul says the exact opposite should be the case. Christian authorities deserve more, not less, honor and service. If you find yourself under the authority of a brother, under the authority of a sister, we should work all the harder. We should honor them all the more. Um, fifth, be concerned about doing others good, not your rights. Be concerned about doing good to others, not your rights. And again, he gives a second motivation for this in, in verse 2. He tells them, um, those that have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better. And then here's the reason. Since those who benefit from their good service are believers and beloved. And again, this assumes a certain value system in the listener. Because that argument only has force if I am more concerned with doing brothers good than I am with my own rights. Hey, I want you to give them more honor. Why? Because the people that are receiving the benefit of your work are brothers and beloved of God. That argument only carries weight if I care about that. So I need to be more concerned with the good I can do others, again, than my own rights. I need to have the mentality of Philippians 2, 3 to 4. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's, that's the biblical call. And again, that's a passage to everybody. These principles aren't just for slaves. These are principles for each and every one of us. Point six drawing to the end here. This ethic is counterintuitive. It will require teaching and likely re-teaching. Notice that he ends these verses with command and teach these things. Some of our translations attach that to the next paragraph. It, it kind of works both ways. It becomes a transition to next week, what we're going to look at, which is some more issues with the false teachers. And so this issue of teaching bridges this topic to the next topic. But absolutely, I think, the command and teach these things refers to this and probably the whole entire previous chapter. But again, Paul understands this is hard. He understands this isn't going to come easy. He understands how counterintuitive, how countercultural such wisdom is. And far harder for slaves than for us. Just, just, just put this into flesh and bone for a minute. Imagine that you are in a foreign country where slavery still takes place, and you're at a church, and there's some slaves there, and they come up and ask you for counsel. They come up and ask you for advice. What should I do? I have a harsh master. Imagine how hard it would be to look somebody in the face and read these two verses to them. 
I can only imagine how difficult that would be. And yet we know the right answer. We know what we might want to say, but we know the right answer. And so if Paul can say that to people in such situations, how much more should we be willing to receive this teaching? But it's going to take a transformed mind. This is why Paul in Romans 12, 1 and 2, writes these familiar verses. I appeal to you, brothers, therefore, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices. Which is another way of saying, die. A living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. By testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The danger is to conform ourselves to this world and its values. The world says, don't let anyone offend you. We pick it up and go, yeah. The world says, don't let anyone take advantage of you. We say, yeah. God says the opposite. God says, be willing to die, be willing to be a sacrifice, be willing to surrender your rights. Which brings us to our seventh and final point. This ethic is modeled most perfectly by the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn, turn back now, finally, to 1 Peter 2. And I know this is hard. And I know it's easy for me to say this up here. And I'm certain that there are some, many of you, who have some authorities in your life that are difficult, that are challenging. Um, I, I have no doubt about that. And I don't want to pretend that this is easy. The truth is the truth. When the truth is hard, we turn to God and ask for grace. And I take great comfort in knowing that the life that we are called to live is modeled as an example by the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's just start this again, back up in verse 13 of 1 Peter 2. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to the governor as those sent by him, to punish those who do evil, and to the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Again, notice the motive here is the gospel going out. The motive here is that people would regard Christian as well. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as slaves of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But... If when you do good and suffer for it and endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, and now here it is, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. The, the Greek word for example is a hupogramon. It's the stencil that a child uses to trace his letters. Hupo, around, gramon, grammar. You've seen those little plastic sheets of the letters and the kid puts the pencil in and traces the alphabet. That's what this is. Jesus' life is our stencil to trace our life around. We've been called to this and we have an example. And then another argument from the greater to the lesser. If this is true in the greater case, how much more so in the lesser case? He committed no sin, which makes him greater than everyone here. 
None of us can have that claim. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Again, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now look at what God accomplished when his servant, when his son willingly set aside his rights and willingly accepted mistreatment. What can God do with that? What can God do with the willing suffering of his people? Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So he gives slaves this example, this model, this picture of Jesus Christ. And the point is this, God doesn't waste the suffering of his people. It is a gracious thing, he said, in the mind of God when his people willingly suffer wrong. And what God does with grace is he redeems things. He redeems things. God will not waste your suffering. On the, on the canvas of God's picture of your life, there are no wasted strokes. And so when God's people stop fighting for themselves, stop fighting for their rights, but rather do what Jesus did, entrust themselves to a faithful creator, say, Lord, this hurts, Lord, this is rough, please deliver me and give me the grace to be patient while you delay. If, if his people will assume that posture, what God can do with that is, is immeasurable. With, when Jesus did that, he, he saved his people. He brought salvation to the world. The advance of the gospel primarily in church history has come through suffering. It said in the early church that the, the, the seed of the church was the blood of the martyrs. And again, it's not that this is something we're looking for, not this is something we're moving into. But when the Lord brings this into our life, and again, Paul tells us that all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. When that happens, we shouldn't be surprised we need to resist the knee-jerk reaction to move away from it. This is the example of Jesus. There's, there's nothing here, there's nothing in these seven points that Jesus has not modeled for us. And if our master can humble himself, if our master can set aside his rights, if our master can willingly accept mistreatment, if he can honor earthly authorities that exist because he holds them together by the power of his word, if he can do that, then he can call us to follow because we are his, remember, we are his slaves. We are bought by him out of the slave market of sin. We have become heirs and sons in his house. But every time we call him Lord, we acknowledge our relationship to him. And we are called to follow after him. And by God's grace, we will do that. By God's grace, we will change our heart attitudes. By God's grace, we will be the best workers, the best employees, the best citizens, the best family members we can be. For the sake of God's glory, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the good that we can do others, for the sake of the Lord Jesus. It'll be hard, but he will give grace. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we recognize this is a hard word. And so Lord, we pray that you would give abundant, super abundant grace. You would help us to receive this. You would help us to own this, that you would transform our minds by the renewal of your word. That we would follow after and model our lives around the Lord Jesus Christ.
In his name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.